so we love a good story. People are just kind of wired that way. We love a great story. And in my family, we like to watch movies. Maybe you do it at, um, at your house. Maybe you go to the theater. We sit at home. We uh, gather up on the couch, and we watch movies. Now, during the lockdown, um, we watched several different series of movies. You know that there's these movies that kind of one builds on the next one. And so we watched the Star Wars uh, movie series. There's like nine or ten of them. And then we watched all the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, the Iron Man and Thor and all that. And, and so those movies go on and on. It took us like a year to get through all of those movies. And now we just started uh, Harry Potter. Uh, so we're seeing what we think of the, the Harry Potter movie series. But there's just something about story that captures our attention. It, it captures our heart. And sometimes these stories move us and they, they move us even to tears. And I'm so grateful. We watch in our house. We turn the lights down when we watch a movie. And so that way my kids don't know that, you know, this dumb movie about the horse is making me cry, you know, and they can't see that. And I'm, you know, acting tough. But um, when we engage with a story, something moves us. I don't know if you have a favorite story. Maybe you've got a favorite movie or a favorite book, something that uh, you just go back to. And maybe it's a sense of adventure and like the soaring thrill of what's possible. Maybe it's history. You love great stories from history or action, adventure. One of the things we do um, when we're at our house after we've watched all these movies is Aaron invented this game called uh, Who Would Win? And the way this game works is you pick a character from a movie and then any other character from any story or any other movie, and you say, who would win between these two? So it might be, you know, who would win? Um, Bilbo Baggins or Iron Man, right? And so you're just kind of imagining these, uh, these battles that might take place. Who would win? Luke Skywalker or Thor, right? Spoiler alert, if you ever play this game with Aaron... The winner is always Thor. Thor is undefeated. Um, Thor never loses. And, um, and so, but it's a way of adding to the story. Like you build story on top of story. And it's fun and it's exciting. We come this way as kids. You know, how many of you have ever tucked your kids in bed and said, Mommy, Daddy, tell me a story. You know, and we love story. I always thought my kids were kind of stalling. You know, they didn't want to go to sleep. Uh, so they wanted an extra story. But we love telling stories on, on car rides. And so that's very natural to us. We also read a lot. And um, in my house, we like to read books together. And being in lockdown during the course of the pandemic gave us lots of opportunities uh, to read together. And we read lots of books together. We're going to do a little bit of reading together here this morning. We're actually going to start in Matthew 4. Um, if you want to open uh, your Bible and get ready, we'll get to, we'll get to the book of Matthew in, in just a minute. And I'll explain why we're in chapter 4 and not in chapter 21 in just a second. Um, but um, when we read together, you know, it's usually after dinner. And, you know, if it's not a movie night, we don't have something going on. We love to come sit on the couch. And for whatever reason, I'm the appointed reader. You know, everybody in the family can read, but, you know, it's always dad who reads at our house. And so we gather on the couch, and we've read over the course of the last couple years 
um, you know, J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and Jules Verne and Robert Louis Stevenson and, and all these great stories and Treasure Island and Huck Finn and uh, there's all these great books. I hope you read together as a family um, when you get a chance. So, like just reading stories and experiencing this together is great fun. And so um, right now we just started reading The Three Musketeers, but one of our favorite books that we read uh, during the last year, during the lockdown, uh, was this one. I brought it with me. I'm going to read a little bit of it here in a second. This is The Hobbit. Anybody here read The Hobbit before? A couple of us. Okay. So it's a fantasy story about some guys that go on an adventure. Um, and uh, I won't spoil the whole thing, but it, it's, a, it's a great story. It's just a fun book to read. And then it leads into The Lord of the Rings. And maybe you've seen those movies. And uh, those are a lot of fun. But when we read, we like to read um, a chapter or two at a time. You kind of get caught up in the story. You, you get to know what's going on. You feel the emotion. You worry about the characters. You know, maybe you feel disappointed. You feel sad if one of your favorite characters dies in the story. And the question that I started to think about as I thought about that is, do we think about the Bible as a story? What is the story of the Bible? Because the truth is, as great as some of those movies and books are, the power of this story will far eclipse anything that you're going to read by any other author, anything else that you're going to see. And so this is an incredibly powerful story. This is a great story for us to read. And yet, sometimes when we read it, we lose track of the story. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. If you've ever read a book, maybe you're a binge reader. You, you like to read eight chapters at once. Maybe, maybe you like to just read one chapter and think about it and then go on to the next one. But there's, there's lots of different ways to engage with a story. But what if when we read a book, we read one paragraph and then stopped? And then read, you know, a week later, read one paragraph and then stopped. And then a week later, read one paragraph and stopped. You'd start to kind of lose track of the narrative. You'd lose track of the story of what was happening. But what you would gain from doing that is you would gain like a deep, rich understanding of what was in that paragraph. You could really dive into it, pull it apart, get a deep understanding of it. And so maybe there are multiple ways that we could come to Scripture. Maybe we could look at the Bible in a couple of different ways. And as we have been preaching through the book of Matthew here in our church— We've been going deep into parts of it at a time, and we get to know Jesus. We get to know the disciples, their motivation deeply, what's what's happening in these few verses that we read. But what if we could step back and read the whole thing as a story all at once? What might we see differently by looking at the whole picture versus just looking at a small part of it? So to illustrate this, I'm going to read a paragraph from this book I brought from home, The Hobbit. Uh, This chapter is called Riddles in the Dark, and it's where, uh, well, I'll just read it. Actually, Gollum lived on a slimy island of rock in the middle of the lake. He was watching Bilbo from the distance with his pale eyes like telescopes. Bilbo couldn't see him, but he was wondering a lot about Bilbo, for he could see he was no goblin at all. Gollum got into his boat and shot off from the island while Bilbo was sitting on the brink, altogether flummoxed, and at the end of his way and his wits, suddenly up came Gollum and whispered and hissed, 
Bless us and splash us, my precious. I guess it's a feast. A tasty little morsel it'd make us gollum. And when he said gollum, he made a horrible swallowing noise in his throat. That's how he got his name. Though he always called himself my precious. You want to keep reading, right? <laughs> like, you, you want to keep, like, what happens next? And you guys know the story, those of you who've read it or seen The Lord of the Rings. Like, maybe you're picturing Gollum in your mind. And we could stop, and we could dig deep into that, into that uh, paragraph, and we could say, what does it mean that he had pale eyes like telescopes? And we could discuss that at length. We could talk about why he hissed and why he had the Gollum sound in his throat. And then maybe the next week, when we came back and read the next paragraph, we'd have to refresh ourselves and remember why we had said what we said before, and we'd come back, and we'd pick it up again. The hobbit nearly jumped out of his skin when the hiss came in his ears, and he suddenly saw the pale eyes sticking out at him. Who are you? He said, thrusting his dagger in front of him. What is he, my precious? I think this is why my kids always want me to read. I do the voices. What is he, my precious? whispered Gollum who always spoke to himself, though never having anyone else to speak to. This is what he had come to find out. For he was not really hungry at the moment, only curious. Otherwise, he would have grabbed first and whispered afterwards, I am Mr. Bilbo Baggins. I've lost the dwarves. I've lost the wizard. I don't know where I am. I don't know. I don't know. If only I can get away. What has he got in his hands is, said Gollum, looking at the sword, which he did not quite like. So, You can read the book when you want to. But here's what happens when we read. And when we read scripture, we are coming into church on Sunday morning and we are going deep, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, into the narrative of Jesus, into understanding deeply who he is. And that's good. And that's what we should do. I have learned so much over the course of the last, do you know how long it's been? Two and a half years. So Christmas 2018... We did the birth story of Jesus and then started with the kind of the story of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount in the beginning of 2019. And so if you have been coming to this church for two and a half years or less, I should tell you we don't always preach on the book of Matthew, but we have been for the last two and a half years. And we've gotten a deep, rich understanding. It's been so fun. You know, as Alan and the team have gotten a richer, deeper understanding of Scripture, they've shared it with us and we've learned but I hope that you don't just get the Bible in those, you know, five verse chunks on Sunday mornings. I hope you're going back and reading the whole story and getting the big picture of what's happening. And so I had to recognize I'm not really doing that. I I can lose track of what's happening in the story um, because I'm just looking at a couple verses or a paragraph at a time. And so Where are we in the narrative of Jesus in this story in the book of Matthew? We're actually at a really important point in chapter 20. As we come into chapter 21, Matthew is telling us that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. And he said a couple of times now in chapter 16 and chapter 20 that he's going to Jerusalem to be persecuted, to die, to to be killed. And so this is a highly emotional, important time in the story of Jesus. And so I thought, I want to take a second, and rather than going deep, I'm going to go shallow this week, right? And we'll cover not just three verses, but we'll see what we could get out of reading 20 chapters at once. And so that's what I wanted to do in preparing for this message, and that's what I did. So this week, 
I put on my comfortable clothes and brewed myself a cup of hot tea and sat down on the couch and read Matthew 1 through 20. I had no idea how long it was going to take, right? Because it's been years that we've been preaching through it. Do you know how long it took? I'm not a fast reader, all right? It took an hour and 10 minutes to read 20 chapters of Matthew. Less than it took to watch the work, right? But you can go, like, into this long stretch of scripture and see the whole story. And I don't know, you can decide for yourself whether, you know, reading three verses at a time is best for you or, or reading 20 chapters at a time. I, personally, for me, maybe like a chapter at a time might be the best thing. That might be the best way to see the story. But I, what I wanted to see was the big picture, the story of Jesus. So I got out a notebook as I sat down to read, and I wrote three questions. And the questions I wrote were, what is Jesus like? What is Jesus doing? And how do people respond? And so I'll share some of my observations uh, from that. And they're just my observations. You may have different ones. But what I found as I was reading uh, across the book of Matthew was that chapter 4 kind of served as a bit of a summary in some ways. And so uh, the beginning of Matthew is the birth of Jesus. Then we have some, um, some narrative about John the Baptist. Jesus goes into wilderness to be tempted. Matthew 5, his preaching starts with the Sermon on the Mount. But let's read from Matthew chapter 4, verses 17 through the end of the chapter. And we'll see that Matthew is giving us a little bit of summary of what's going to happen over the coming chapters. Matthew four seventeen. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Then immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments. And those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And so, three things that I'll just make a quick note of here. In verse 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this is sort of the big picture summary of what Jesus' message was. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is what Jesus was um, doing. He was going around preaching, teaching, healing people. And then the result of that was his fame went through all Syria, and great multitudes followed him. So if you think of a summary of what's happening in Matthew 1 through 20, these three verses give a little bit of a summary of what is happening Um, as Jesus is going through his story. In the same way that if you were summarizing your favorite movie, you might say, you know, it's about a princess who couldn't escape from the evil whatever. So you would give sort of the overview. This is the overview of what Jesus has been doing in the first 20 chapters of Matthew. So let's talk about each one of these things a little bit more. First, what is Jesus like? Second, what is Jesus doing? 
And then how do people respond? So remember, these were my three questions. I just scribbled on a piece of paper before I sat down to read. And um, I want to look at each one of these for a minute. First, what is Jesus like? Maybe you have an impression of what Jesus is like. You know, maybe it's informed by like a movie or a TV series you've seen about Jesus, or, or maybe like a painting of Jesus, or something you heard in Sunday school, or maybe it's informed by your reading of Scripture. But we all kind of have an impression of what Jesus is like. But in sitting down and reading these verses, I just wrote down some things. The first thing that I saw is that Jesus is incredibly humble. I mean, he is God in the flesh, and he's lowering himself to come be with people. Jesus is an amazingly humble guy. He's, he's with He's very present, God with us. And so Jesus, when he comes to be with people, he's very engaged with the person he's talking to. He's not distracted by someone else. He's miraculous. Everywhere he goes, miracles happen. And that's not all. Just some of my impressions as I read what Jesus is like. He's mighty. He's challenging. He's radical, encouraging, reassuring, sobering. Times he's demanding. He's so present and approachable, supernatural, mysterious. He has high standards. He's patient. He has peacefulness about him. He's joyful. He said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. He's compassionate, kind, determined, forgiving, undistracted. He's loving. He's friendly. He's so much friendlier than me. That was so convicting. He's faithful. He's talented. He's disruptive. You cannot miss him. Times he's confusing. He's self-controlled. He's fun. Jesus is a fun person. He's provocative. He's powerful. He's good. And so maybe if you like just sat down with a piece of paper, you might have a different set of impressions that you came away about who Jesus is as you, as you read his story, as you read the story about Jesus. But I looked at this and I thought, what a great list of adjectives to describe someone that I want to follow. Like I want to be a part of following somebody who's like this. And so what is Jesus like In all of these things, he's remarkably human. So, as I looked at the story, and the next question is, what is Jesus doing? I was surprised at how many times Jesus was, like, tired, or hungry, or thirsty. Jesus was like us. He went through life in the same way that we did. And sometimes we can think of him as this sort of distant person and think he didn't deal with the same things that we dealt with. But there were times Jesus needed to go to bed. Jesus needed some time to himself. He wanted to go pray and be alone. And so Jesus is a remarkable person. And so what is he doing as he goes through his ministry? Well, he's doing those very physical things, but he's also doing exactly what chapter 4, verse 23, said he was doing. In fact, one of the things that I noticed, and you pick up on this when you're reading a lot of chapters at once, is that there are themes that are repeated in Scripture. And this verse um, in Matthew 9.35 is almost exactly the same as the one in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 23. A little bit different. In chapter 4, he's going through Galilee and preaching. And in chapter 9, he's going everywhere. The difference is he's preached the Sermon on the Mount, and now he's going more widely. He's going from place to place. But where are my middle schoolers in the room? When Jesus is doing something, what kind of word are we looking for? What part of speech describes an action? What's an action word called? Anybody? Adults can answer too. You don't have to be a middle schooler. A verb, right. So our first verb here 
is Jesus went. Jesus was going somewhere, right? It's the same in both verses. Jesus went. And so when you think of Jesus, Jesus is not someone sitting back waiting for people to come to him. He's not indifferent. He's going towards people. He's closing the distance between him and people. And that shouldn't be surprising because he's already done the biggest trip. He's come from heaven to earth to be with us. And so he's going to go from town to town, from village to village, and meet with people. And when Jesus went, it wasn't that he got in the car. He didn't jump on a camel. Jesus is walking. Um, And so you kind of get this notion that Jesus is spending a lot of time in his sandals on these dirt roads from place to place, going to where people are. And I love that Jesus comes to where we are. It's great that you come to church and that you come be here. Wherever you are, Jesus is going towards you. Jesus wants to be with you, whether that's here in church, whether that's at your house, whether that's at your workplace. Jesus wants to be with you. Second, verb, teaching. Jesus is teaching. Everywhere he goes, he teaches, right? Next one is preaching. Let's talk real quick about the difference between these two words. Because it's careful to say teaching and preaching. And so they're not exactly the same thing. If you're a teacher, or I mean, all of us have had teachers in school. The main job of a teacher is like to help understand something, to impart knowledge. And so when you're teaching, you're helping like, get it right in your head. The difference between that and preaching, preaching we, we most often think of like what, you know, what's happening right here. You know, somebody stands on stage with a microphone and they're preaching and you know, later on, I'll probably pound on the Bible and stuff and raise my voice, and, you know, that's preaching. But preaching is really about um, helping people know what to do next. Like, like, you're helping people figure out how to live, what to do. And the reason we preach and not just teach on Sunday mornings is that we're not just hoping that you come away from church with a better understanding of Scripture. We're hoping it makes an actual change, like a personal application in your life. And if you've ever had somebody say, oh, don't preach to me, they feel like you're telling them what to do, right? But this notion of preaching is about helping people figure out what to do next, like, like how to live life. And so Jesus is doing both. He's both helping people get an understanding, and he's telling them how to live and what to do. Last action word up here, final verb. Jesus is healing all kinds of sickness and every disease among the people. And so Jesus is going about healing. Now we know that Jesus actually physically, miraculously healed people. Blind people received their sight. People who never walked, stood up and walked for the first time in their life. Think of the miracle of that, of legs with no muscle definition. You know, you never learned the skill of balance. And so it's not just he restored strength. But everything about the body system learned to walk in the moment that Jesus restored the power of walking to someone. But Alan made a great point last week that the healing that Jesus brought was not just physical healing. He's not just in the business of fixing people's bodies. You know, you got a broken arm, you go see Jesus, your arm is better. Jesus was meeting people's deepest needs. And we know that the healing that we need in our lives sometimes is physical. You know, and some of us live with pain, been diagnosed with diseases, and we're hoping for healing. But the deepest healing that every one of us needs 
is the healing of our soul, the healing of our heart, the healing of our spirit, of Jesus making us right between, him, between us and God. And so the brokenness, the wounds that are deepest inside of us are the places that no doctor could ever fix. But they're the places that Jesus ministered to. And Jesus heals people. He heals us. He heals me. He heals you in your deepest places that you need healing. And so this is what Jesus is doing. In summary, for 20 chapters, he's going, teaching, preaching, and healing. This is what Jesus is up to. And then the next question was, how do people respond? A lot of different ways. You see a lot of different responses as you read through this. I'll share some of, um, some of the ones that I noted, and there are a lot more. The wise men worshipped. Herod was troubled. The disciples followed. The multitudes were amazed. The people brought their friends and family. The centurion showed him honor. The swine keepers fled. The people were astonished. The great multitudes followed him. A woman touched his garment. The mourners ridiculed him. The people crowded him. The desperate came to him. The blind called out to him. The sick put their hope in him. The people cried out to him. John's disciples questioned him. The Pharisees accused him. The Sadducees tested him and tried to trap him. The powerful thought they could control him. His hometown was offended by him. The religious leaders sought to destroy him. The rich young ruler went away sad. But his disciples obeyed him. Peter believed and recognized him as Lord. And so how do people respond to Jesus? All kinds of different ways. Lots of different ways. And every one of us responds to Jesus in a different way. The one thing no one does is have no response to Jesus. And there are times when maybe we think we can be indifferent and not pay any attention to what Jesus is going, doing in our lives. But we all have a reaction, a response to who Jesus is. And we can find ourselves in these responses that we see in Scripture. You know, as different people do different things and how they respond to Jesus, maybe sometimes for me, I'm troubled. Maybe sometimes I'm obedient. Maybe sometimes I'm astonished by what Jesus does in my life. But Jesus said in all these responses, he who is not with me, is against me. And so while it looks like there's a thousand different ways to react to Jesus, ultimately, at the end of the day, they're going to fall into one of two categories. Either you're following Jesus in full and complete surrender to him and making him Lord of your life, or you're rejecting him and you're making yourself the Lord of your life. All the other categories of responses either fit into Jesus is Lord of my life, I bow my knee before him, I obey him, or I reject him, and I do things my own way. And so each one of us, then, is faced with those decisions about how we respond to Jesus. And so how people respond to Jesus, lots of different ways. And those were my three questions. And just some quick notes I took as I read through. I wish there had been a fourth question that I would have asked. Um, And it would have been impossible to track. This is probably why I didn't do it. But I I wish I had asked, you know, on my little piece of paper, what is Jesus' message? And what makes that difficult is if you have a Bible that shows the words of Jesus in red, or if you've been here in church for the last two and a half years, then you'll know that Jesus has a lot to say to us. So those red words in in the New Testament are Jesus' words when he's speaking. And there are a lot of them between 
Matthew 5 and Matthew 20. Actually, all the way up to the end of the book in Matthew 28. And so Jesus' message is this big question. And we've gone into lots of aspects of what Jesus' message is. What Jesus has to say about how we live, how we sacrifice, how we surrender, how we serve. Jesus' overarching message, the big picture of why he came, was to redeem us. It's to restore us to a right relationship with God. And the words he used that best sum that up are when he says this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's unpack that sentence for just a minute. There's two parts, the part before the comma and the part after the comma. The part before the comma is just one word, repent. And the word repent has this notion of apology associated with it. It's like, I'm sorry. And that is an aspect of what repent means. However, repent also means, it's this idea of changing direction. Repent is not just like apologizing for something. It has to do with making a 180. I was going this way. I see this is the wrong way to go. I'm sorry, I don't want to go this way. I'm going this way instead. And so when Jesus says repent, he's saying, you're going a certain direction. It's the wrong way. (laughs) Stop. Turn around. Go the opposite direction. That's what repent means. And so when we repent, we're not just saying, oh, God, I'm so sorry for committing this sin. I I feel guilty. That's not just what repentance is. Repentance isn't just, Jesus, please forgive me for this wrong thing I've done. Repentance is... I see that what I'm doing, the direction I'm going is wrong. Yes, I'm going to apologize, but I'm going to change something about it. I'm going to do something different. And a little bit different, dramatically and completely different. So packed in this one word of repent, Jesus is saying, there's a way that seems right to you to live your life. It's not right. (laughs) Stop. Make a change. Do it different. Go the opposite direction. And what is the opposite direction? That's the part that comes after the comma. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's easy for us to think of the kingdom of heaven as, you know, one day we'll go be in heaven with Jesus. It's eternity. It's what happens after we die. And that's true. But the kingdom of heaven is here now with us. And Jesus came to say the kingdom of heaven is starting now. And so being part of a kingdom and serving a king says that there is a lordship over my life. And that lord is not me. That lord is God. That lord is Jesus. And he's saying, I'm bringing you a new way of living your life. The identity that you have doesn't need to be about your job or your family or career. You're not defined by your biggest mistakes or your strongest temptations. In the kingdom of heaven... Who you are is Jesus' beloved child. We are his sons and daughters, adopted, co-heirs with Christ before God. We're redeemed. We're made new. And we're not called to be the same people we used to be. And the reason is we're part of a new kingdom. We're not primarily defined by anything other than we are part of the kingdom of God. And when we put our faith in Christ, he changes everything about us. And he says that over and over and over again. The kingdom of, we've been hearing it. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who found a priceless pearl. The the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a great treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in the ground. The kingdom of heaven, 
is what Jesus is teaching us how to live like. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and that's worth stopping, turning, and going in the opposite direction because we're invited into a much better story than the one that we have been writing on our own. We're invited into God's narrative for our lives. And so packed into this little phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is everything about what Jesus is inviting us into. If I just read this verse at face value, it sounds like Jesus is going, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Like I almost feel like he's scolding me. You get this finger shake thing. My mom didn't really do that. She didn't shake her finger at me when she scolded us. But Jesus isn't scolding us here. He's inviting us. He's saying, guys, there's something better. Why would you go that way when you could go this way? So repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is the core of what Jesus' message is. And so I looked at these four questions, and you cannot read all this stuff about Jesus in the Bible without starting to like apply. Okay, what does this mean for me? Like, how does this apply to my life? And so I looked at these questions, and I thought, what if I didn't ask, what is Jesus like? What if I asked the question, what am I like? If you were going to make a list of adjectives to describe me, please don't. (laughs) But if you were going to, I guarantee you it would not be the same list of adjectives that we use to describe Jesus would be a different list of adjectives. And so the people who know you best, how, what would they say you're like? What kind of adjectives describe you? Here's a fun little exercise you could do. If you could pick any adjective, any adjectives to describe yourself, and it had this magical power that when you wished it, it would come true, right? So you get to pick an adjective, and by choosing that adjective, it becomes true of you. So you could say, I want to be rich, and you'd be rich. You could say, I want to be an NBA power forward. That's not an adjective, is it? That's a, sorry. I want to be tall. <laughs> I want to be beautiful. I want to be young. I want to be healthy. I want, like, I want to be powerful. What adjective would you choose? You don't have to shout it out. But, like, if you could pick one adjective to describe yourself, and it would become true of you, it would be, like, the theme of your story, what adjective would you choose? That's not telling us what you are like so much as what you want to be like. But, honestly, if you identify what you want to be like, it is telling us something about what you actually are like. It's revealing something about the desires of your heart. I thought a lot about this. I wanted to be joyful, like I wanted to be a happy person. I wanted to have peace, like being peaceful felt like a good thing. Um, I wanted to be faithful, and that feels like it's a lot of my actions. I ultimately decided, like I had a lot of time to think about this and kind of what I wanted to say in front of you guys, right? So I sound like I got it together. I decided Christ-like would be my adjective. I want to be more like Jesus. Um, But uh, that's not necessarily the perfect one. It's just, you know, I I think it's the the right church answer. But... um, (laughs) but what would you want to be like? And how would people describe you? And what's different between how people would describe you today versus what you actually want to be like? And then I looked at the rest of these questions, and they all kind of reflect on me. Like, what if the question wasn't, what am I doing? What if the question was, or what is Jesus doing? What What am I doing? Not, how do people respond? How do I respond? 
Not what is Jesus' message, but what is my message? And then as I thought about this, I had this horrible thought. Like, what if 12 of my closest friends were following me around for three years, and then four of them sat down and wrote 28 chapters about what my life was like during that time, right? So, so people are writing the story of Seth. Like, what would that be like? Would that be a good read? <laughs> Chapter 42, what Seth did during the pandemic, <laughs> you know? For the first six months, he cut his own hair with a set of clippers on the deck. Then he stopped. <laughs> the end, <laughs> you know? He, he went home and made reasonably sound dis- financial decisions, <laughs> paid his mortgage on time. I, like, what would your story be? If you had a biographer following you around every day, writing the story of your life, how would they describe you? How would you feel about other people reading that story? We love story. We're writing a story. Right now, you are writing a story with your life. And you're writing a book that describes who you are, what you're like, what you do, what your message is. Every day, you are writing it based on how you respond to the call of Jesus. It's a fascinating thought. So first, I was glad nobody was following me around writing this book. Then I came across this verse from Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened. Another book was opened which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And then I realized, (laughs) it's not just me that likes stories. God likes a great story. And he's writing in a book our story, every one of us, small and great. And one day, we're going to go stand before the throne of God in heaven, and he's going to open it up. And that story that you're writing right now is going to be read in heaven. What kind of story is it going to be? What kind of adventure will be in it? What kind of intrigue will be in it? What kind of parts do you not really want to be read out loud? What parts are you going to be really proud of? Hey, listen to this part. Man, I, that was a really good moment for me. You know, listen up. Like, what's that going to be like when we're standing there before God? Here's what I know about the way God works is that I'm going to have all these responses to Jesus in my life. Times when I'm troubled, times when I'm confused, times when I obey, times when I don't. But what matters is, is my name written in the book of life? Because if my name is written in the book of life, when Jesus opens to my story, God reads that from his throne, what he's going to see there is that Seth was like Jesus. And the sinful things, the embarrassing things, the shameful things, the painful things, the wounding things that are in my story are not going to be what's read in that moment. I'm going to be judged according to the blood of Christ because of his redemptive work. He took the place of my sins and he rewrites my story in that eternal book according to his character and what he's like. And if my name is not written in the book of life, if I'm not one of Jesus' followers, then I actually get judged for what I really did in life. And the good stuff I may feel super proud of, but there's going to be more that I'm not super proud of that I don't want to be judged before a perfect God on. So we actually are writing a story. All right, so personal reflection. 
what is Jesus doing? Okay, let's change it to what am I doing? So we asked these, we noticed these things about Jesus. He was going, preaching, teaching, and healing. And so what would your story be? Where do you go? So if it was like, here's the story of where Fred went. Sorry, if your name's Fred, this isn't about you. I tried to, if your name's not Fred, just if it is, pretend it's not. Okay, what is Fred doing? Where did Fred go? Fred went to church. Fred went home. Fred went to the refrigerator. Fred went to this website. Fred went to his friend's house. Fred went to the bar. Fred went to the bowling alley. Where did Fred go? What is your story? Where are the places you're going? And what's your message? What if Jesus is actually calling us to go? What if it is our job to go? What if we're not always supposed to be in the same place? What if we're supposed to be going somewhere? I don't know what part of your story you're in. Maybe you're in the early chapters of your story or the middle. Maybe you're toward the end of your story. You're in the later chapters, which, cool, by the way, in all my favorite books, the later chapters are always the best ones. But you can still go. In Jesus' day, he had to strap on the sandals and walk to the next town. But we can go by sending a text message. We can go by making a phone call. We can go by writing a letter. There are lots of ways that we can close the distance between us and other people. And Jesus does, in fact, command us to go. The Great Commission starts with that word. Go, therefore, into all the world. And what if we are actually supposed to teach? What if we're supposed to be helping people understand God? What if we're supposed to be like Jesus in this way? We're supposed to help people understand. Maybe I don't have a terrific understanding of God's word. But you know what? I know some of it. I know some of what God has to say to me. And when he does, I can share that with other people. Whatever it is, I can share the little nuggets that God has revealed to me. And scripture is clear that if we're faithful and honest and we'll open our mouth and start to share with people, he'll give us, the spirit of God will give us the words to speak in those moments. Don't be afraid that maybe God might want you to teach. Then maybe God might want you to preach. That might not mean coming, standing up here and putting on a microphone. It might. Maybe God is calling some of you to actually be a preacher by trade, to be a pastor. That's possible. But each one of us can help other people know the choices to make in their lives. Every one of us can help people know what to do next. You don't have to go preach at people. But if you have a relationship with someone and they're facing a difficult thing in their life, then you can go and help them know what to do next. Not because you've got it all, but because we have the answer key. We have the book, right? There's your moment. I told you I put sound on it. Okay. Um, That we have the answers and we can help people. And is God really calling you to heal? Could it be possible that God might be calling, asking you to go be part of healing in someone else's life? Yes. Yes. You might not set their bones. You might not, you know, give them antibiotic or whatever. But maybe you can help them in the pain and hurt in their life find the healer. Find the one who can mend our hearts and meet our deepest wounds. And maybe you can be part of healing in someone else's life. We asked what Jesus is like, and I want to say, what am I like? What are you like? This list of adjectives was really daunting to me to put together. I'm not like those. You know, the one that hit me the hardest was this thing about friendliness. I try to be friendly. I'm not always super friendly. Jesus was. But I looked at some of these, and I noticed that, you know, Jesus was loving and joyful and peaceful. Man, that would be great. If I could be those three things, that would be amazing. Could I just set that goal? Probably not. I'm probably not capable of being those three things. 
Then I started to look at this list, and I saw patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And you know what that list is? That's the fruits of the Spirit. Jesus lived like he was full of the fruits of the Spirit because he was full of the Spirit. Jesus and the Spirit are one. And so I'm not capable of being this list of things on my own, and neither are you. I'm sorry. But if you are a follower of Jesus, his spirit is in you, and you will become more like Jesus. The fruit of his spirit in you will make you more loving. It will give you more peace. It will bring you more joy. You will be more gentle and kind. People will describe you as good and faithful and self-controlled because of God's spirit. God can make you like this. And in fact, God is making you like this. Those of you who are following Christ, you are becoming more like Jesus. And what are you like? You are like Jesus. And that's getting written in that book for eternity right now. And then the question was, how did people respond? How did people respond to Jesus when he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? That's not just how did the people in the Bible respond, but the question is, how will you respond? How will you respond to Jesus' invitation to turn from the way you're going and make a dramatic shift and going a different direction and be part of his kingdom? It's a, a different set of responsibilities. Every one of us will respond. In fact, in the end, the book of um, Revelation says, um, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Revelation, right? Um, but at the end, every one of us will bow, will admit that Jesus is Lord. Every one of us will confess when we get to heaven. We get to do it now. We get to be ahead of schedule. And when we are, we get to live into this kingdom that he has invited us into. And so how will you respond? If you don't know how to respond to the invitation of Jesus to be part of his kingdom, come talk to one of the pastors, um, one of the leaders, somebody in the row next to you. We can describe what it's like to find your identity in Christ, to belong in his family, to have a purpose that's about serving him. This is what Jesus invites us to be. And so, finally, that's the narrative of Jesus, Matthew 1 through 20. Some of the stuff that I observed in sitting and reading 20 chapters, it's a really great story. Um, And do I recommend reading 20 chapters at once? If you do, here's what I would say. Don't necessarily wait until after, you know, the kids are in bed and it's the last thing you do and brew hot tea and put on comfortable clothes and sit on the couch. Because what will happen when it gets to be 10 o'clock, if you're like me and you're awful comfy and you're in chapter 19, your eyelids could start to get a little heavy. Um, I think, uh, here's what I would want to say. Yes, you should read big chunks of scripture at a time. Yes, you should pick a couple of verses and just go super deep on what does this particular verse have to say to me. If you spent the whole hour in the first five verses of Matthew 5, you would not get through it. And I missed a ton by blazing through it the way I did. So come to church on Sunday mornings. Go deep with us. We need that. But don't lose track of the big picture of what's happening, of the overall narrative and story of what Jesus is doing in our lives, because what Jesus is doing is not just what Jesus does, did. It's not all in the past tense. The works of Jesus are not contained in this book because Jesus is still at work. He's still doing those things in our lives, in and through us each and every day. In conclusion, this is the last slide. Your life is writing an eternal story, and one day it will be read in heaven. It's going to be a great story. It may not always seem like it, 
But if Jesus is the Lord of our story, it's a great story. Jesus sets the perfect example for us, and he invites us to follow him. And when we follow him, we become more like him because of his spirit at work in us. And everyone responds to Jesus. And the question is, how will you respond? The invitation is to respond with total surrender to Jesus, to make him Lord of your life and find everything about who you are and what's important to you in him. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand.